You are listening to a series called Shadows, Discovering Christ Through the Old Testament from the Axis Church in downtown Nashville. For more audio and other resources, visit theaxischurch.org. All right, welcome and good morning. I'm Jeremy, one of the pastors here at the Axis, and I too, just like you, am a sinner in need of God's mercy and grace, which we get to see and hear about clearly Uh, from Scripture this morning together. So go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 6, where we're going to be in week 5 of our 10-week series uh, that we've entitled Shadows, where we're discovering Christ in the Old Testament. I'm I'm very thankful for this time with you today. Um, Thank you for being here, uh, chiseling out part of your weekend to gather with the local church. It's very, very, very important. Thanks for doing that. As we begin, uh, I want to start out in sort of some ground rules for our time together um, in this series, just um, recalling it again for those who have been with us the previous four weeks. But um, the Bible is is 66 different books, um, but it's really, it's one book written with one grand story, one meta-narrative, one grand narrative, and it's broken into many parts, and you can summarize them into four main acts, okay? Creation, fall, redemption, recreation. Creation, everything's great, The fall, Adam and Eve, our first parents, much like us, we try to do our own thing in our own way, rebelling from God's thing, God's way, which brought about the need to be redeemed, which is Christ coming to us in the form of redemption, um, coming to live as us, to suffer in our place, and to beat death, giving us hope, which brings about the new creation, recreation of ourselves in light of his finished work, making us live to God as well as participating in the new heavens and new earth that is one day going to happen for all those who believe him. So creation, fall, redemption, recreation, one big story that's written really to describe God's plan to redeem and rescue his people, his children. So what this means is that we don't just meet Jesus in Matthew, which is in the latter part of your Bible in the New Testament, in, in the concluding pages up to Revelation, what this means also in part is that the Old Testament has pictures of Christ. It's got uh, glimpses of the Redeemer who will come and rescue and make all things new and better and do away with everything that's broken and sad, make it untrue as if it had never happened, reversing the curse and reversing all sadness, making nothing but gladness to remain forever and ever. And so even now, as we unpack our Old Testament, we see not heroes to imitate, but we see them as people that, sure, we could admire for certain reasons, but know that we're just looking at them and seeing the Jesus that they're reflecting. We're getting little taste of the heroes of the faith in the Old Testament. We're seeing them point to the true and and greater hero. Um, We're not looking at them. We're looking above them at who it was that they were looking at. And we get to see Jesus Christ. And so really the Old Testament includes a lot of characters that foreshadow in some little way here and there the finished work of Jesus Christ. So the main purpose of this is to open our minds to the Old Testament that see it not just as some old book waiting to get to Jesus, but it's a new book written to to talk about Jesus. And then we finally get to see him um, in the flesh in Matthew, but we see him in shadows long before even in Genesis. Um, And also our hope is not just to open your mind to the Old Testament, but to open your heart to admire Jesus more as we discover more and more of what he has accomplished 
for us. So today we're going to be looking at Jesus through the lens of Noah, the great flood, and the big boat called the ark. So man set himself up to be the authority in his life. This started in the garden with Adam and Eve. They tried silencing the voice of God, the divine voice of God. They tried silencing the love of God in their rebellion to do their own thing in their own way. This is called the fall. After the fall, because of sin and humanity's rebellion against God and his way, mankind, this includes all of us, began a fierce downward spiral away from God and away from all that honors God in obedience. And unfortunately, mankind is still in this downward spiral, but not only spiraling away from God, but in spiraling away from God, mankind is spiraling away from life, from joy, from hope, from fun, from contentment, from pleasure, from peace, from purpose, from our identity, and from clarity of our current reality. And as we're going to see, the only way out of this damning spiral is to look to Jesus and to personally experience the grace of God. And my hope for you, my supreme hope, overarching hope for every single one of you, as I look you in the eyes and I see your faces and I understand some of your stories and backgrounds, my greatest hope for you is that before you die, that you will personally experience the grace of God through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that it might be today for some of y'all, but my hope is that it would happen before your death day, that you would personally experience the grace of God through Jesus Christ, that you would see him for who he really is. So the flood, I know there's a lot of modern day skepticism regarding the flood. It is kind of over the top, right? It's a a lot to try to believe. Um, And this is of course what we're going to be looking at today, but it's important to note that Jesus referenced the flood. He referenced this historical event, um, which should validate the flood beyond any disbelief and skepticism for us. Because the way that I see it and understand it is you can't believe Jesus and then doubt the flood, okay? Because Jesus believed the flood and that it happened, and I believe Jesus, then logically I have to believe the flood, that should settle it. If Jesus believes it, then I should believe it. That should validate it for me. Um, And so uh, it's by faith, right? Um, It's not through reason or logic that you're saved. It's by faith. And this is even one of those moments where we have to be like, I don't know. I wasn't there. We don't really have many videos left over from how that happened. We don't have a lot of footage. Uh, But we have scripture that says it happened. And Jesus later validates that it happened. That's enough footage for us to believe that it happened. But here's how this plays out in in Genesis chapter six. Look in in verse five. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that was outward rebellion, outward wickedness. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart, this is the inward wickedness and rebellion, was only evil. Was not just evil, only evil. Not just only evil, only evil continually. Everyone everywhere had forgotten God. Violence, hate, disease, destruction, death, anger, fear, hurt, loneliness, frustration, rage, people destroying themselves, people destroying each other, people destroying the earth, 
total depravity, moral corruption. And due to sin, man is thoroughly corrupt, perverted, wicked, against God, rebelling. And, and in fact, the nature of mankind is on sin, always. It's our bent. The same is true of humanity even today. Mankind's nature is bent against God. The default setting of your heart and my heart, the default setting of man's heart is set in direct opposition to God, his word, his way, and humility before him and others. We're against those things. All sinned, all are sinners, sin ruled all, and all were ruled by sin. All were alienated from God, separated from God, okay? And so all must be punished, according to scripture. All of mankind was wicked to their core, and no one did right in the eyes of God, okay? No one was perfect. Justice would be that God would destroy all. So history should stop right there. Really, the Bible should stop right there. It's grace that we have chapter seven and eight. It's grace that we have the rest of the Old Testament. It's grace that Jesus actually showed up. It's grace that we have Matthew through Revelation. It's grace that you and I are here today listening to the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is absolute, absurd, extravagant grace. This is wild. It should not be normal that we hear Christian preaching and we get to gather like this. It's bizarre. Well, in verse six, the Lord regretted that he, that he had made man on the earth. And this phrase right here, perplexing, it grieved him to his heart. The heart of God experienced pain. The heart of God experienced pain. If you don't like the idea of divine judgment, like hell, God's wrath, coming judgment, know that God dislikes it even more than you do. This sin, this wickedness, the judgment that was to come, it grieves him to his heart. Grieves him to, this is a deep, unfulfilled longing. It's the same word, this grieving, is also mentioned in Isaiah 54, 6, where it's talking about a wife who got married really young and was deserted quickly by her lover. Grieved to her heart, unfulfilled longing. God felt God felt. This is an unfulfilled longing. It's bitter anguish. It's deep-seated frustration. So friend, if your theology doesn't make room for your God to feel, rework your theology in light of the first few chapters of the Bible because God felt. Literally, what this means is God voluntarily bound his heart up and his life up with us and he didn't have to. Like once, once God made mankind in his image, in his likeness, he knit his heart up to ours. His joy in some way is attached to us and his joy is attached with our joy somehow. He feels pain when he sees his creation suffer, when he sees his children suffer because of the fall. It grieves him. He tied his heart to us, but in the garden, we said, we don't want you. We don't trust you. We don't like you. We're going to do what we want to do. We hear you. We hear you plainly. We just don't like it. And we want to do what we want to do. And so a perplexing thought here early on is why didn't he stop his concern for us right after that? After Adam and Eve chose to do their own thing in their own way, totally rebelling against God, why did God continue to pursue? 
If you look in the earlier chapters, why did God pursue Adam and say, Adam, where are you? After he was running from him in sin and shame. Why does he intervene in your story? Why doesn't he just let you continue on? Why do you think he has you in this room today? That's grace. Why are you concerned at any degree whatsoever about what the Bible says or what God thinks? That's grace. That's him pursuing you. In some way, the reason you're even in this room is because God likes you. And he's pursuing you. He's not leaving you and just letting you go your own way. You're here because he's calling you in some way. That's grace. It's something we definitely don't deserve. Today, God is suffering over the sins of the world. It's grieving him, much like it did in Genesis 6. Later on in Genesis 34, one of Jacob's sons grieves his sister being raped. It's the same word here that's, that's, that's used to describe the heartache that God is suffering because of the sinful violence that God sees across the earth. This shows, among other things, that God is not detached. He is not dispassionate. He is involved. God is deeply moved and affected by human pain and suffering. He doesn't like it. God is not removed. God is not detached or absent. He's deeply moved by our personal pain and suffering. Friend, God is deeply affected by your pain and what it is that concerns you and hurts you. His heart grieves over that. He is near the brokenhearted. He will not crush those or put out the wick, the flickering wick of those who are crushed and perplexed. He's near those who are suffering. Well, verse seven, it says, the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals, creeping things and birds of heaven, for I'm sorry that I've made them. God was going to destroy mankind because of the suffering that they were enduring. It's as if his heart was so broken he couldn't take it anymore and he's about to bring his judgment and wrath on mankind for their evil ways and for the resulting suffering of their sin. He was going to destroy everything he made except verse eight tells us something that should be very surprising. In verse eight, but Noah, this is grace by the way, <laughs> a ton of grace. Noah found favor in the eyes of of the Lord. This is undeserved favor. Noah did not deserve God, but God pursued Noah. Was Noah perfect and without sin? No, but God still pursued him. Now, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. He walked with God. He had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, the earth was corrupt in God's sight. The way he saw it, it was corrupt. And the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was spoiled to the core. It was corrupt thoroughly. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And now God's going to speak. He's going to intervene. He's going to do something. Motivated by love and compassion, God is going to work to redeem and cleanse the awful state of the world. And so he speaks. God speaks to Noah and says, I have determined to make an end to all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. I'm gonna stop the destruction 
and destroy the destruction. God judging the world is also offering the world a second chance. He's, he's restoring things. He's cleaning things. It's as if God said, this world is important to me in the creation, so I want to make it better. And so the, the flood is actually God's commitment to the world, right? It's his commitment to the earth, the animals, and the humans to make it better. In verse 14, he tells Noah, go make yourself an ark of gopher wood, a giant boat. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch, like an asphalt tar-like slime, right, as a sealer. So God had the idea of the ark, and he gave the idea of the ark to Noah. This wasn't Noah's brilliance. It was God's brilliance, and it was Noah's obedience. Long before the flood came, God had the idea of an ark. He had a plan to restore and redeem his creation. And just some few details of the ark here. Taller than a three-story building, the deck area is the size of 36 tennis courts, longer than a football field and a half, and 75 feet wide. It's a pretty big boat, right? In verse 17, he said, For behold, I'm going to bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. Perfect justice is being carried out here. Fair is taking place. If we could see through the eyes of God. But this leaves us and mankind in absolute hopelessness. Except in verse 18, God is committing to something. He says, but I'm going to make a covenant with you. I'm going to establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark. There's been sending out of the garden. There's been commissioning to go be fruitful, multiply. There's been commissioning so far from Genesis 1 to Genesis 6. This is the first time there's an invitation to come near. The first time the word come is used, the first invitational word to come near God is used. It's an invitation. It's the first time it's used in scripture. You're invited to come into the ark, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And he goes on to say, take two of all animals, reptiles, birds, male and female, take them into the ark with you, preserving their life. Take food and supplies for all animals and yourself. Now, I don't want to get caught up into how this worked, um, but I will for a second. Um, the ark is, is big, but to put all the animals of the earth on the ark, it's, it's a stretch, Right? Um, Jesus believed it happened. Noah said it happened. It's in God's word that it happened. So I know that it happened, but how, I don't know. But I don't envision them being full-size mature animals. I envision them being very, really small, uh, which increases the odds of them being able to reproduce because they're younger. Uh, they make smaller messes, if you're with me. Um, they eat uh, smaller amounts of food, right? And they just take up less space if they're smaller. Uh, that's as in-depth as I'm going to get because we're not here to talk about those particulars. We're here to talk about Jesus. Okay, so let's keep, keep moving. Verse 22, Noah did all this, and I love this, and I hope this is said of every one of us who are Christians. He did all that God commanded him. Then Genesis 7 and verse 16, and those who entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. So Noah built the ark, Noah built the door, but Noah didn't shut the door. God shut the door that Noah built. And then the flood continued for 40 days, verse 17 tells us, and the waters increased and bore up the ark and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth and the ark worked. It floated on the face of the waters and the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. 
The ark that once seemed so big as he was building it now feels so small as he's across nothing but water. Take note here that the same water that crushed and destroyed is the same water that saved and rescued. It bore up the ark. The same water that crushed those who didn't believe is the same water that lifted Noah and his people. Yes, this is horrific judgment, yet it cleansed and it saved. And it's awful. These next few words are hard to read. And all flesh died. That's just awful. But it's just. The question shouldn't be, why did God only save Noah and his family? The question should be, why did he save Noah and his family? Why did he save anybody if all were corrupt and none were perfect and all were rebelling in some way? Well, verse 21, all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind, everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. And then a key focal point in the text is the beginning of chapter eight and verse one. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a, a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided, the fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens were restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. Long story short, Noah waited several days and then opened the door and walked out on dry land. And he and the animals and his children were fruitful and multiplied. God said in verse 15 to Noah, in verse 16, go out from the ark, you and your wife, your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. Just like he told Adam and Eve. So things are kind of restarting, almost like Adam over again. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. And he's still speaking of mankind. He's still speaking of Noah when he says this. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I've done. Now this is a heavy historical event. It's a remarkable event. It's a saving event. And for those who have been Christians in the room for any length of time, as you look at this event, don't allow it to make sense emotionally. Don't read this and be unmoved. This story is horrific. It's crushing that people died. It's marvelous that people were saved. We've got to learn to look at this event the same way that we look at hell. Always be emotionally and spiritually moved when you consider the reality of God's divine judgment upon sin and humanity. Be thankful that you're free from the coming judgment of God 
but also don't think yourself as, as better than others because of it. Let it humble you. Allow it to fuel your mission to see that no one ever goes to hell uncared for, unprayed for, and unwarned. Make it your life's ambition. And don't for one second look at this story and with pride look down on those idiot sinners who doubted Noah and who rebelled from God. Because that's you. That's you. That's us in the story. Don't for one second look at this story and with pride picture yourself on the ark as Noah or as one of his kids. That's not you. If you and I are in the story at all, we're the ones mentioned as making fun of Noah, frolicking in our sin and rebellion, arrogantly ignoring God and rebelling in every way possible. Did you hear that? Do you believe that? If you are pretty good and God made you better, you will not celebrate grace. If you were dead and you were given life, you'll celebrate the one who gave you life. If you don't start at your desperate need and your arrogant rebellion, you'll never celebrate grace. If you don't see yourself as dirty, why would you take a shower? And if you don't see yourself as a depraved sinner, why would you ever consider a savior? You'll never worship God or see Jesus as spectacular if you don't start at you being a rebellious, dead hater of God. You'll never appreciate the gospel. You're not Noah. Noah is a shadow of Christ. Lift your eyes further above Noah to the substance that Noah was reflecting. Don't look at the shadow. Look at the substance. Don't look at Noah. Look at the greater Noah. Noah and the greater Noah, or the ark and the greater ark. Jesus is the greater Noah. Jesus is the greater ark. Consider these comparisons and contrast. You see, Noah, he represented his people. Jesus represents his people. It was God's plan to save Noah through the ark. It was God taking the initiative. Judgment's coming. Here's an ark. Here's how you're going to be saved. Do this and you're going to be saved. All this is grace that I'm mentioning to you. In the same way, God's plan to save mankind through Jesus was God taking the initiative. For God so loved the world that he gave. It doesn't say mankind so loved God that they asked and earned. For God so loved those rebellious, wicked sinners. Not a nicer version of who you actually are, the true version of who we are. He loved those idiots numb to him, hating him, rebels to him. Oh, he loved him and sent his son to die for him. That's grace. Noah built the ark by faith to save himself and his family from the waters of God's wrath. And Jesus is the greater Noah that saved us from the cup of God's wrath through faith to where it's counted as righteousness for all those who believe. Noah and his family came into the ark by divine call. It was God's call. And the call of Christ comes to needy sinners as the sweetest, most gracious invitation that we can ever hear. The people of Noah uh, that were saved with him were saved because of his hard work. Noah was the lead, leader in this obedience. And the people who believe Jesus Christ are saved because of his hard work and his finished work. Noah's obedience led him to a wooden ark 
the obedience of Christ leads him to a wooden cross. And the ark was stupid to a lot of people. To the majority of people, it was unattractive. It was foolishness to those who didn't see it as their salvation. And so was the gospel to those. Even Jesus in Isaiah 53 had no former majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected. He was despised and we respected and esteemed and received him not. But for those who know him as savior, see Jesus as the most beautiful in all the world, the most attractive thing ever. First Corinthians 1.18 says the, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. It's ridiculous. An ark? Are you kidding? Rain? We've never even heard of that. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. As Noah was being mocked for building that ark, he saw every piece of wood go into that ark as being the means of him experiencing life and being kept safe. This is the gospel. This is the cross. This is the work of Christ. Others may make fun of it, but we see it as the power of God for our salvation. Through Noah, God gives people a new earth. Through Jesus, God gives people new hearts and brings about a new creation that we get to experience forever. But you know, the flood didn't remedy the sin problem. Jesus remedied the sin problem by living a perfect life, dying our death and beating death. And the blood of Jesus washed away sin and the power of sin that the floodwaters simply couldn't. But Noah, by his righteousness, saved not only himself, but his family, foreshadowing the righteousness of Christ through which Christ Jesus saved his spiritual family, the church, his bride, the apple of his eye. Noah and his people were safe and secure on the ark and every single person who placed their hope and faith in Jesus Christ who believe in him are safe and secure in him. Again, all those who trust Jesus Christ are safe. They're saved, forever protected. And no one, no one person lived outside of the ark and no one person will experience eternal life outside of Christ. Outside of the ark was no hope. Outside of Christ, there is no hope. The ark was given by God through grace to provide a way of escape from the coming judgment on mankind. Jesus the Savior is provided by grace to give us a way of escape from God's coming judgment on mankind. The ark was a refuge from divine judgment. And the greater ark, Jesus Christ, is the refuge from eternal judgment. He is our refuge. In fact, Jesus is the only refuge given to man through which we can be saved. And the ark took the full fury of God's wrath so that Noah didn't have to. It took on the waters itself, the waters of judgment, so that Noah wouldn't have to. Jesus took the full fury of God's wrath on the cross so that we don't have to. And those who were in the ark, they endured the wrath of God, but it was really the ark that suffered the waters. And those who are in Christ have already endured the wrath of God through Jesus absorbing it for them, taking the punishment and judgment upon himself. And those who are in Christ will never have to worry about experiencing God's divine judgment ever again to any degree at any time for any reason. And what we see with the ark and Noah is God saving Noah physically, but what we see with Jesus is a picture of God's grace that saves us spiritually, eternally, and forever. The flood was to wash away all hate and sadness and wrong things and make the earth clean again. 
But the blood of Jesus Christ is the only thing that can truly wash away hate and sadness and sin in our hearts, making us clean so that we can experience a personal relationship with God and even love and care for others the way that Christ love and cares for us. The ark saved those from the flood who by faith entered it, and Jesus the greater ark saves all those who by faith would come to him. It's interesting that being a sinner, Noah took sin on the ark and brought it back out with him again. If you read the next few verses, uh, Noah's quite a character. But Jesus is different. Jesus being the savior of sinners, he took sin with him into the grave, but he leaves it there. And Noah's work on the cross was insufficient to, to really save mankind, but the work of Christ is sufficient to save mankind. And the, the, uh, the ark, humanity did receive kind of a fresh start, but not a new heart. Only through Jesus Christ and his cleansing, atoning work, the sacrifice to end all sacrifices is sufficient to change our hearts and to save our hearts. The new purified earth was not sufficient to save man. What mankind needed was a new heart. And this only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And had God not made himself, made, made himself known to Noah, Noah would have perished with the rest of the world. And that would have been fair because Noah himself wasn't perfect. And in the same way, the Lord graciously reveals his love, his mercy, his care, his grace in Christ to the hearts of men and women, boys and girls, by the gospel which you're hearing today, which is absolute, over-the-top grace. And so, my friends, if you hear his call at any level at all in your hearts today, lean into that. Respond to that. Dig there. You know, this was an actual event that occurred in human history. But it's also, it also paints a picture of what Christ was going to do in and through his life, death, and resurrection. The flood is a picture of judgment that is coming. The people in the ark, they are people who chose to repent of their sins and receive forgiveness and walk in obedience. And the ark is a picture of Jesus. The destructive waves of the flood are representing the wrath to come. And without Christ, we're lost and hopeless. Jesus says in John 3, 36, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God, the raining down of his wrath and his judgment remains on him. Only in Christ Jesus and looking to him by faith are you safe from the coming waters of judgment. And when you believe in, in him, when you believe Christ and you follow him, there is no more condemnation for those who do that. There's no condemnation. There's no fear of judgment for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I know that given the point and what's going on around the world, all eyes are on Israel, right? <clears throat> There's a lot of people studying Revelation. There's a lot of people studying Daniel as if COVID wasn't enough, right? <laughs> um, we're wondering, is this the end? The end times began when Jesus ascended. We're living in the end times. We've been there for 2,000 years. Now, I know there's a heightened awareness on, is this the end? And you should be asking that question every day, whether there be peace in Israel or not. You should be living your life every day as if this is the end. But you know, Jesus referenced the flood when he talked about the end. When he talked about his return and the end of what we know as the earth today, 
he referenced the flood in comparison to that moment. In Matthew 24, Jesus said that when he returns, things are going to be a lot like they were in Noah's day. So how was it in Noah's day and how does it compare to us? Well, people were eating and drinking, kind of just going about their own day with, with little concern. And then right up until the day the flood came and Noah got on the ark, that's when people began to say, wait a minute. They didn't know that anything was going to happen until the flood came and swept them away. That is how it's going to be when Jesus does return. You make ready now. You don't make ready then. In the days of Noah, no one but Noah believed that rain was going to come. No one but his family. Maybe his family didn't believe, but they believed Noah. But Noah believed. So it will be when God's final judgment comes. By surprise, people not expecting it. Friend, this is why we Christians are still here. You have one main purpose that you're to give your life to, and it is to tell others about Jesus Christ as you yourself learn more about Jesus Christ. It's why you're here. There is judgment coming, and your friends and family and the people in your city are not ready. There's people around the world that are not ready. And it is so awful. It is the worst type of hate to not warn friends and family of what's coming. It is so selfish to build your own ark and know that you're going to be kept safe and not tell other people about the coming judgment and the rain that's coming. That is the most cruel hatred. And I know that you're wonder, you know, worrying about offending your friends and family about your beliefs and how it interferes with theirs. Don't you think for one second that those who died would give anything for one more chance for Noah to tell them the truth about what was going to happen? This is why preaching still exists. This is why you still have a Bible that you can hold and read. This is still part of why the church exists. We're to proclaim that there is a very real and final judgment coming that will destroy and kill forever so many people. And we're to tell people not only that, but we're to tell them that Jesus came to endure that coming judgment already for them if they would by faith humble themselves. And that's what was happening on the cross. I mean, the whole world was drowned under the flood of God's wrath, except for eight souls on the ark. The whole world is going to be destroyed in the everlasting wrath of Almighty God, except those men and women who are in Christ, who believe Jesus and hope in him. But how will they hear unless we go tell them? Jesus alone is the savior of the world. That is your job to believe that and tell that to others. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. If we're going to be saved, we must enter into the greater ark, which is Christ Jesus, and that includes your friends, and that includes your family. Every single person that will live forever must be cleansed and washed by the blood of Jesus Christ, covered in his righteousness. We must flee from the wrath of God, and in fleeing, we run to Christ Jesus. That's the answer. That's the hope. And for those in the room who are Christians, who believe Jesus who've experienced the goodness of that gift of faith. 
I want you to live as if the flood of God's wrath is truly finished. Like, like live as if the great wrath is finished, as if Jesus actually took it upon himself to where you're safe and secure. I want you to live fearless lives of gospel ambition, reckless lives of gospel advancement because you can't mess it up. He's with you, you're safe, you're secure. You're gonna be kept in heaven forever with him through what he's done. And now you get to go invite people into this. Live as if you're living in Christ. Live lives of generosity because you've been blessed so much and cared for so deeply by God. Live lives that aren't so drowned down with care and anxiety of the things of this world that are fleeting and passing away. There's nothing to fear ultimately. You are immortal until God is finished with you. You can't die unless God is finished with you. So take risk for the gospel's sake. Live lives that aren't marked by guilt and shame, but by grace and forgiveness and freedom. Live risky lives of mission because you're safe and secure in him. Judgment is coming. So go out on mission, announcing to all that Jesus came to rescue you from the coming judgment of Almighty God. Don't you think that sounds absurd? Well, it was absurd to say, I'm building an ark and you can be saved if you get on this boat. But yet that's the message. You're not responsible for the response. You're responsible to speak. It's the parable of the sower. You throw some, it hits the good soil. Some hits thorns, some on the path, some the birds eat, some. You're not responsible for what the soil is gonna do. That's not the point. The point is you throw the seed, God is responsible for the soil. And if you think that you're discerning enough to know what the good soil is and the rocky soil is, you're a fool. You don't even know your own heart is desperately wicked. How can we know someone else's? Throw the seed everywhere. Throw gospel seed everywhere and trust God with their response. You've done your part. My hope and my prayer is that the reality of God's coming judgment would change the way that I live my life that it would change the way that I interact with my friends who don't know him, that it would break our hearts, that in some ways we wake up and we're like, man, he didn't come back in my sleep. Shoot. Oh, well, I want to use today to count. I, wanna, I want today to matter eternally. So I want to use this day. I'm upset that he didn't come back, but I'm excited because I get to tell others that he's coming. My prayers is that would fuel our mission. To those who aren't Christians yet, this story is about new beginnings. It's about second chances. It's about hope, like true hope, like a great hope, like, like something that's like, like sure that you can experience. I know that many of you have forgotten God and you don't consider him much, not very often. If you're honest with yourself, you probably think it's odd or kind of funny that you're in a church building today, listening to a Christian sermon. Thank you for being here. To my friends who aren't Christians yet, you're loved, you're cared for, you're appreciated so much. Thank you. Much like the people in the days of Noah, 
Maybe you're doing your best to push God away and to ignore him to some degree. And many of you think that when things are going badly, that's the time to look at God and kind of blame him for things. That's when you really believe in God is when life hurts. But other than that, you don't really think about him. And if you're like most of my friends who aren't Christians yet, you're trying to live your life being a good person. And I appreciate that. We need more good people. But I want you to hear me. Good people weren't saved by the ark. Bad people were saved by the ark because they believed it was God's plan to save them. So my prayer for you, and has been, that you would see that you can never be good enough on your own. My prayer is that you would experience the grace that's called humility before God, and that you would humble yourself, and that you would believe that Jesus is God's plan to save you and give you what real life is about, that he came to make you good enough to where you can have peace about eternity and purpose today. I mean, the Bible teaches that God is just and holy, righteous and pure. And the Bible teaches that God must punish sin because it's ultimately rebellion against him. And he would cease to be good. He would cease to be God. He would cease to be trusted if he fails to execute justice. Like he's the ruler of creation. He's the judge of creation. And so if he lets stuff slide, he should not be trusted. He has to judge sin and rebellion. And so I ask you in light of this to consider your unbelief. I ask that you, you analyze like what is your plan to save yourself? I, I don't think it's fair enough to say I don't believe in God, I don't believe in Jesus. And so what do you believe? What is it that you're placing your hope in? What is it? What is it that you're trusting in that's gonna save you from the wrath of God? What else are you hoping in for the forgiveness of your sins? We're all guilty. You're not perfect, you know that. You're reasonable enough to know that you're not perfect. You're reasonable enough to say that, okay, you're a sinner, okay? You don't always do the right thing at the right time for the right motive. So therefore, we all need to be helped. We all need to be saved. We all need to be forgiven of the things that we've done. And if you, if you think about it, Back in the days of Noah, there were two main categories of people. There were those who were in the ark, and there were, there were those who were outside of the ark. Today, there are people who believe Jesus and his words and hope in him for salvation, and there are those who reject Jesus and are hoping for another way out on their own, another way of salvation on their own, okay? There's those two groups of people, those who trust Jesus and they're saved from judgment, and those who trust that it's not going to rain. Those who are trusting that God's wrath is just never going to show up. That's what you're ultimately hoping in. You hope in Jesus taking on the wrath, or you're just hoping that it's made up and it's not going to happen. But in doing so, you're in the direct path of the wrath of God, and you will not endure it. You'll suffer for it the rest of eternity. Those are the two groups of people. In the ark, out of the ark. In Christ, out of Christ. There's nothing, there's no one today able to meet your need except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Nothing else, nobody else can save you or satisfy you. It's Jesus Christ who takes the wrath of God upon himself and brings you back to God. That is the only way to be saved. 
there is a judgment that's coming and it's going to be a lot like the flood according to Jesus. And the flood of God's wrath is not here yet. There is still time to get in Christ. There's still time to enter the ark, if you will, and be saved. And God is patiently waiting and oh so graciously offering you the opportunity to enter and be saved. So please turn to Jesus and believe him so the wrath of God no longer abides on you. But it's absorbed by Christ so that you're free and forgiven. Believe this. Please believe this. Believe this today. Believe this every day. But believe it, please, before it's your last day. Please. As a means of reminding us of his finished work on our behalf, Jesus offered us the Lord's Supper as a way of remembering what he's accomplished for us. And he gave his disciples two visual aids the night that he was arrested before he was crucified. He gave them two visual aids to remember his saving work. And he chose, of all things, he chose bread and he chose wine. Today we've got juice or wine according to your age or conscience. Jesus used bread and he used wine. The bread represented his body the life that he lived in the flesh. He lived perfectly. He lived that as our representative in exchange for our sinful lives. The, the red liquid, the, the wine there, is symbolic of the blood that he poured out for us as he gave up his own life on the cross where he was a sacrifice for our salvation, absorbing the wrath of God upon himself. So today, we who are Christians are gonna take this bread and dip it into the juice or the wine tasting it, remembering what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. And as we take, I ask that you think on these things. Thinking on these things is how one becomes a Christian. Dwelling on these things is how the Christian is made happy as we remember more and more what Christ has done. We're gonna have servers on either side of the stage, self-serve stations in the back two corners. Christian, don't drift through this time together. I know we do this every Sunday. Don't allow this moment to lose its significance. Think about what we're doing. The body of Christ, his blood poured out for us. In this you are saved. Remind yourself of what Christ has accomplished for you to be in the greater ark, saved from the judgment, to experience the new creation. Let's pray together. These are the gifts of God for the people of God, and we proclaim the mystery of the faith that Christ has lived, he's died, he's risen, and he will surely come again. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord, and now may the blessing of God Almighty, our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, be on this time of communion and remembering and worshiping and reflecting and remain with us always, even through the end of the age. Amen. Christian, when you're ready, please come and take, remembering, not drifting, remembering the finished work of Jesus Christ.